You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 8.2 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. This episode on Frank Schaefer's 2011 memoir, Sex, Mom, and God, How the Bible's Strange Take on Sex Led to Crazy Politics, and How I Learned to Love Women and Jesus Anyway. Uh, I just want to say before we start the episode, uh, I want to talk a little bit about why I picked this book. Uh, so this is the second episode in a pair of episodes on biblical manhood and relationships. And I picked this book to pair with uh, the book our first episode was on, Mark and Grace Driscoll's Real Marriage. Um, because I see Mark Driscoll and Frank Schaefer kind of as opposite sides of the same coin, uh, they're both really popular, polarizing figures in Christianity. They both use their views on sexuality as a way to get heard by a wider audience. Um, so those are the similarities. Differences. Unlike Driscoll, uh, who situates himself as a complementarian and a neo-Calvinist, Schaefer aligns himself with much more liberal social and political issues and uh, is trying really hard to distance himself from many, or sometimes it seems all, of the political or religious labels he held when he was younger. Uh, so I thought those two personalities and their respective books would make for an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, I hope, listeners, that you think the same. So first, uh, here today, I have Katie Grubbs and Sarah Morrow-Cernelia with me. Uh, let's go around the table and introduce ourselves, ladies. Katie, you go first. Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. This is my second time on the podcast, and I currently teach English, and I'm also serving as director of the Writing Center at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. I'm also writing my dissertation on the early modern child elegy in England and America. And um, just on the kind of personal side, um, I'm married to David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and we have uh, one little girl who is two and now have another baby on the way, which is very exciting and fun. So, yay. Yay. Congratulations, Katie. Um, I am Sarah Morrow Cernelia. My husband and I currently live in High Point, North Carolina, where I teach high school English at the area's only non-sectarian independent school. When I am not teaching, I'm also a doctoral candidate in 18th century British drama through Florida State University and my dissertation at the moment, is about uh, staged representations of lawyers in 18th century British drama and the way they mediate national identity. Fun stuff. Uh, Victoria? Thank you, ladies. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I live in Waconia, Minnesota, uh, just for a little bit longer. My husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and I are soon moving uh, to Minnetonka, Minnesota, 
we decided it would be beneficial to be a little bit closer to the Twin Cities and a little bit uh, further away from our school, which is Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. There I teach English and sociology, and like Sarah, I am writing a dissertation through Florida State University. Uh, my dissertation is on young adult novels that adapt Shakespeare for girls, and I just started uh, writing the last chapter, so it looks like I might actually graduate sometime in the near future, so that's exciting. Yay! Congratulations! Yay! Uh, looking at looking at December of this year, so uh, I'm sure I will keep everyone posted on that. But now to the topic at hand. Um, first, we're going to do some background, as we always do. Sarah, tell us a little bit about the structure and the tone of Sex, Mom, and God. All right. Uh, Sex, Mom, and God is divided into a prologue, 10 chapters, and an epilogue. Uh, whether or not the 10 chapters or the 12 total sections was biblically intentional or mere coincidence, I'm not entirely sure, but there it is. Um, the prologue outlines Schaefer's exigence, which, according to him, is a need to, quote, acknowledge the destruction I contributed to before his grandchildren grow old enough to inherit the vandalism, end quote, that um, has resulted from his participation in the rise of the religious right in America in the 1970s and 1980s. Each of the chapters that follows is centered around an episode from Schaefer's childhood or young adulthood involving his relationship with women that also reflects some aspect of his mother's life, personality, and or teachings. These memoirs often provide a vehicle for or ultimately segue into a discussion of Schaefer's professional life as a participant in the family business, in this case, his parents' involvement in the evangelical Christian movement that uh, involved itself with the rise of the religious right, and his subsequent reflections about the flaws of this movement and his eventual disavowal of those ideologies that he once espoused. Alternately apologetic, humorous, pedantic, and at times patronizing, the overarching tone in Sex, Mom, and God, ultimately, for me at least, is a difficult one to pin down. While Schaefer claims to have renounced his evangelical upbringing and involvement, the lessons learned at the foot of his father's pulpit and at his mother's knee run deep and true. He appears to believe passionately in the message he wants to convey, and this passage rings through his prose. Uh, reviewers have called Sex, Mom, and God largely a story of Schaefer's doubts. That was the New York Times. Um, and have claimed that... Uh, quote, as someone who has made redemption his work, he has in fact shown amazing grace. That was in the Washington Post. The accuracy of these statements might best be left up to our listeners. Uh, however, although we will provide, I'm sure, our own evaluations of these claims as the episode progresses. Thanks, Sarah. Um that's, uh, I think, a good introduction into what was also, for me, a, a kind of... Uh, a kind of confusing mishmash of, of tones and genres, too. Um, before we get into the book itself, um, some more background. I'm going to talk just a bit about Frank's parents, Francis and Edith Schaefer, who are pretty huge figures in Christian culture in their own right. Uh, Francis and Edith marry in 1935 and are then sent to Switzerland by the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. Um, 
And in 1955, they establish uh, the Labrie Fellowship, uh, which Katie will tell us more about in a minute. Um, Regarding his parents, a big theme of Frank's book is that their public images kind of get away from them, that their public personae um, as missionaries, as uh, leaders in the Christian right, don't really match up with the people that he knew, the people that he feels uh, raised him from day to day. Um, and, and these double lives look different um, for Edith and Francis, respectively. For Edith, this means that her, um, her advice about marriage and family, uh, which is found primarily in what I think is her most famous book, um, 1971's The Hidden Art of Homemaking, uh, which frames cooking, decorating, flower arranging, things like that, as uh, ways for women to bless their family and worship God. Uh, this book gives rise to um, what Frank sees as very negative um, cultural impulses, the much more conservative, um, quiverful and Christian patriarchy movements as um, as lauded by authors like Mary Pride, um, who establishes the quiverful movement, and Jenny Chancy, who writes a book called Passionate Housewives Desperate for God, um, who basically says um, not only can women um, worship God through homemaking, but that it is the number one priority that they should, uh, which is, of course, different than what Edith herself says. Um, so that's what happens in Frank's view to Edith's work. Um, it becomes kind of more uh, culture worry and derisive and divisive in the hands of these other people. Uh, for Francis, who is a super prolific writer and thinker, wrote 22 books. Um, this means eventually aligning himself mostly at the behest of his son, which Frank laments often um, in this book and some of his other books, with political movements that he initially found extreme and too political. The biggest examples of these are the pro-life movement, uh, which he discusses at length in 1971's The Christian Manifesto and 1983's Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which he uh, authors with former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, and also the Dominionist movement and the influence of R.J. Rushduni, um, which I'll cover more in my discussion of Chapter 5. Just to give a little bit of uh, personal perspective here, my, and I think many people's, most prolonged exposure to Schaefer um, when I was younger was his book and video series, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture, uh, which aims to discuss how developments in lots of fields, history, philosophy, literature, art, science, etc., um, lead to dominant mostly anti-Christian 20th century perspectives. And ultimately, the book um, argues for what has come to be called a biblical worldview. So that's a little bit of background about Francis and Edith as cultural figures. Katie, tell us about Labrie Fellowship International. Okay, thanks, Victoria. So Labrie was founded um, by the Schaefers in 1955, They'd already gone to Switzerland as missionaries, as Victoria mentioned. And the word Labrie means the shelter in French. It was 
originally intended as a place for seekers, um, people who were interested in the Christian faith, but but didn't necessarily profess it already, um, to come and learn about faith, learn about Christianity, and um, ask ask difficult questions. That's a that's a, a, a way of describing it that I saw lots when I was doing my research. And um, originally. Switzerland, Libri in Switzerland was just kind of the shaper's home. They started inviting people into their home, usually young people. And as the kind of ministry grew, they they began to spread out. So in the book we're talking about today, Sex, Mom, and God, Frank Schaefer talks about at one point, you know, them getting another chalet across the road for the young men. And so all the young women, are, but all the young women are still living in their family home. And so he's just surrounded by women. Um, and so it gradually kind of grew and grew um, to more and more, more buildings at the original kind of outpost in Switzerland. And now, you know, many, many years later, has actually spread around the world. Um, Libri International has locations all over the place. I believe that there are three in North America, in Minnesota, um, I think Massachusetts, and there's one in Canada. But there are also uh, many others all over the world. There's one in Brazil. There's one in Korea. There's one in Australia. Uh, so there are, are many, many. And from what I've read, too, these different kind of outposts um, can have different feelings. They don't, they're not all run along exactly the same lines um, or even necessarily along the exact same theology. And so there's some autonomy within the branches. Um, I know I was reading an article that I'm going to actually recommend at the end of the podcast about the kind of modern um, or contemporary incarnation of Libri and how even the original branch that's still in Humos in Switzerland, where it originally started, has slightly differing views from um, a different place, a different ministry in Switzerland started by another Schaefer daughter, um, and how they, you know, even that's slightly different. So it doesn't seem like it's a a ministry or, or an effort that's um, that has evolved along the same theological lines from the beginning, or even that has maintained the original theological views of Francis Schaefer, the founder. Um, another thing that I think um, is interesting is that there's been there's kind of differing views about what Labria was really like. Was it like a commune or was it like a seminary? Um, and it kind of, at least in the beginning, seems to have had um, this kind of more, you know, kind of hippie-ish, kind of laid-back feeling. Students would come who were seeking and would hang out at Labrie, ask questions of Francis Schaeffer, have dialogues. And um, in one of the articles I read online, there was a, a reference to even students now who visit Labrie listening to some of these dialogues, these questions and answers. And um, later, as Francis Schaeffer grew older and as he grew more prominent, um, some some say, and uh, the the main person I found stating this idea is actually one of his son in laws, who married his oldest daughter. Um, say, you know, he said later, kind of towards the beginning of the '80s, it became more of a situation where students might come and ask questions, but what they would get in response would be something more like a lecture or um, a monologue of you know Francis Schaeffer's kind of stated theology, um, and then obviously now. The first generation, first generation Schaefer's, uh, Francis and Edith, are gone. And so it's kind of being run by the second generation. Their oldest daughter, Priska, and her husband currently run the, the original location in Switzerland. And the focus um, has kind of changed again. From what I read, a lot, a lot of their students now who come 
to to stay, at least in Switzerland, are students who've grown up in the faith, but who are maybe um, disaffected with American culture or want to have a different experience. Um, and so they they go to Libri in Switzerland to kind of get away and deal with doubts or, you know, think about if they want to remain true to the faith that they were raised with. So it's it's kind of morphed in interesting ways over time. And it was an interesting thing to to research and learn about uh, this week. So that's it for that. Thanks, Katie. Uh, so that's pretty much the broad strokes background that we're going to cover about the book. And now we're going to dive into uh, the book proper. Sarah, your chapter comes first. Tell us about chapter two. All right. Chapter two is um, is the one that, for me at least, establishes uh, the crux of Schaefer's argument. It is entitled Magic Menstrual Mummies, uh, which, after I initially appreciated the alliteration of the title, um, the first thing that struck me was the following quote, The God of the Bible is appalled by women. Uh, so begins Schaefer's argument in chapter two after an introductory anecdote wherein he describes his fascination with the uh, menstrual cycles and specifically the menstrual pads discarded by the women who were living with his family in Switzerland as part of the brie that Katie just mentioned to us. Um, he all goes on in this anecdote to uh, recount a time when, curious about the blood, he scraped some of the blood off one of the used pads in the wastebasket in his bathroom um, and put it on a slide so that he could see what it was made out of. Um, Schaefer then begins um, by talking about blood and how specifically menstrual blood is portrayed negatively throughout the Bible. From there, uh he transitions to discussions of bloodshed that are glorified in the Bible, usually when the righteous are vindicated and the wicked are vanquished. This discussion becomes a pretext for discussing the fallacies of the real Christians, capital R, capital C, which then cycles back to biblical preoccupations with menstrual blood and, for that matter, any fluid relating to women's sex, marriage, and or childbearing. These readings, according to Schaefer, stand in uh, contrast to some of his mother's views about sex generally and within marriage specifically. Um, for lack of a better term, the practical application of the anecdotes outlined in the first third of this chapter um, are summed up by the following quote, and I apologize for uh, quoting extensively at this point, but I feel like this really outlines uh, where he is trying to go. So this is Schaefer. Since the 1970s, the American culture wars have revolved around a fear of sex and women no less insane and destructive than any horror story to come out of Afghanistan. The issues of gay rights, abortion, premarital sex, virginity, abstinence, and the God-given role of women, make babies, love Jesus, and shut up, have dominated our political social debates. Why? Because sexual politics, American style, illustrates how deranged societies become when ideas about sex are based on literal interpretations of the biblical account of the facts of existence. Extremism, even extreme prudery, begets extremism. Dysfunction begets dysfunction. Wait until marriage and women are unclean beliefs have generated an insane counter-reaction that takes the form of an off-the-wall sexual license, a bizarre mirror image of our prudish North American version of the anti-woman biblical extreme. 
and the quote ends there. I'm not sure what the page numbers for that are because I, I viewed the book on an e-reader, so I, I apologize that I can't give you any specific pages. Um, the chapter ends with a graphic description of his visit to the emergency room with his wife, Jeannie, after she began hemorrhaging. It's during this final section that we're also given an account of the first time uh, he met his wife. A blazon dropped into the middle of a rape room in a hospital. Um, so this chapter essentially lays out uh, the crux of the argument that lies at the heart of Schaefer's memoir. It was also, albeit very early on in Sex, Mom, and God, a very difficult one for me to get past. Um, the chapter epitomizes... For me, what I ultimately find so difficult about the work as a whole, it's alternate uh, fetishizing and reviling of his childhood experiences, particularly those related to women, um, his seeming inability, despite his protestations, to have moved beyond the scars of his childhood in a meaningful way, and his employment of strongly worded and at times poorly sourced arguments to prove a point. Perhaps the shape of Schaefer's prose is intentionally meant to mimic the structures of which he is so skeptical. There are times when it sounded very much like sermonizing of some sort that was meant to elicit uh, pathos rather than logos or ethos. Um, at the same time, while he's disavowed the religious right, it feels to me that he has merely switched political sides, not that he's really changed. Um, is there anything that I've overlooked that I should bring up <laughs> ladies? Uh, I don't think you've overlooked anything. Uh, two things that I did want to add quickly. Um, oh, sure. One, uh, the passage you read, um, is from pages 50 to 51 in my edition. If our listeners want to look that up. Okay. Um, and secondly, um, I want to, you, you, this came up in the in the quote that you read, so I want to touch mm -hmm. on it really briefly. Um, when Schaefer talks about God, he talks about God in a couple of different ways. Um, he uses the word God when he's talking about his God or, or real God, and then he uses this hyphenate, the God of the Bible, um, uh, se separated by a series of hyphens, to discuss um, what he feels is, I guess, not real God, uh, the, the God of the biblical literalists, the punishing God. Um, so, so since you read that phrase, I, w I wanted to make that distinction. Um, he, he seems to be trying really, really hard, even on a linguistic um, sort of word level, to differentiate between um, his current views and his past views. But I would agree with you, Sarah, in saying um, I really do not think that Frank Schaefer is any less of an extremist now. I think he's just on the other end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm with you there. It felt very much like a pendulum swing, not so much like moderation or course correction. So I guess um, this would be a good time. Unless, Katie, do you have anything to add to that? Um, just that I, I actually, because you brought up the, the God of the Bible, I, I found the capitalization in this book very interesting. And he talks about at the very beginning of the book that um, things that he throws in capital letters are things that his mother uh, found to be important or to be a big deal. Um, and so, or things and the phrase he uses is these are things that loomed large for Edith and some of which still loom large for him. And, um, and he says in some senses because he can't let go of those ideas because they were so central to his childhood. So throughout the book, there are all kinds of things that are um, 
capitalize on the first page of the the chapter Sarah was just mentioning. We have in all capitals our girl's monthly uncleanness, right? As a concept, um, the aforementioned God of the Bible. There are all kinds of different things, but to me, it was almost kind of strangely like reading. Um, a kind of archaic manuscript back when capitalization was kind of more or less when you felt like it. I, so for that reason, it was kind of a strange thing to me to encounter. And that affects the book's tone too, right? Sarah was talking earlier about um, that that some passages seem like a kind of um, faux sermonizing. Um, so you get that, which may be um, sort of ventriloquial of Francis, and then you get this capitalization, which is a kind of in- admitted ventriloquism of Edith. So I, I think that that's part of the reason why it's hard to um, hard to pin down the tone of this book, because in some cases, literally, you have his parents' kind of ghostly voices um, in- intruding in- into his manuscript. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and transition into the chapter I'm covering, uh, chapter five, it's good to be the queen and Rush Juni. Uh, like the chapter that Sarah mentioned, this is basically separated into two parts. Uh, the first part is a personal narrative that is then later meant to connect with um, a kind of political viewpoint in the second half of the chapter. So the personal narrative that we get at the beginning of chapter five concerns Alice, who is a mail carrier uh, a Swiss mail carrier who also babysits Frank um, for a while when he's a kid. And Alice is important to Frank's development and his overall story in two main ways. First, she teaches him that the lost, which I believe we also get in capitals, um, that, that is unsaved people, can be good, loving people. Uh, she brings him to respect his parents for quote, providing him with a powerful vaccination against the rejection of the other. Uh, And secondly, um, the second reason that Alice is important, uh, Alice and Frank play this game every night following his evening baths. And in this game, he dresses up as the Queen of England. uh, And Alice coronates him. He gets a bath towel stole and a tinfoil crown. um, and, And as this game progresses, increasingly elaborate costumes uh, Alice also gives him, and, and herself very deeply loves, a uh, collection of memorabilia of the British royal family. Uh, so in discussing these things and how they're important to him, Frank cites Bible passages that condemn cross-dressing, uh, Deuteronomy 22.5, and idolatry, Exodus 24-6, through 6, and argues that those who take the Bible more literally than he does would want to stone Alice to death for these transgressions, uh, for her cross-dressing, or her encouraging him to cross-dress, and, uh, and her idolatry. And basically, he doesn't say much more or imply much more about it other than, like, these biblical literalists would want to hurt Alice without knowing her as a person for violating these biblical laws, and that's bad. Um, I I did want to read a passage from the end of the Alice section um, where he talks about what his parents kind of taught him through his relationship with Alice. Uh, He says, and this is at the top of page 98, 
I'm lucky that mom and dad and the actual life lived in Labrie were so wonderfully out of step with their official doctrine. There was room for Alice and many other eccentrics busily breaking biblical laws. And I think that my introduction to human diversity, as well as my strange over-sexualized childhood, not to mention my mother reading good books to me by authors who were very different from us real Christians, capital U-R-C, is what eventually opened the door to my being a writer. So he says this great thing at the end of that section about accepting the other and sort of seeing a different side of Christianity because he's surrounded by these people who aren't like him, and that opens him up, and that's great. And that is great, and I agree with that part, and I I try, especially in my own teaching, to expose my students to ideas and people different from them um, in hopes that they will see uh, God's creation in those people and ideas and that they will be broadened a little bit. So I support this. But, uh, but, the second half of chapter 5 is, uh, as I said earlier, about R.J. Rushjuni and his ideas. Um, Rushjuni is probably the biggest proponent of the Reconstructionist or Theonomist worldview. Here's how Schaefer describes what Reconstructionists believe uh, on page 102. Reconstructionism, also called theonomism, seeks to reconstruct, quote, our fallen society. Its worldview is best represented by the publications of the Chalcedon Foundation, uh, which has been classified as an anti-gay hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. According to the Chalcedon Foundation website, the mission of the movement is to apply, quote, the whole world of God to all aspects of human life. It is not only our duty as individuals, families, and churches to be Christian, but it is also the duty of the state, the school, the arts and sciences, law, economics, and every other sphere to be under Christ the King. Nothing is exempt from his dominion. We must live by his word, not our own. Um, All of those quotes are, again, Schaefer quoting the Chalcedon uh, Foundation's website. So basically the idea is that we as a country should write biblical law, especially Old Testament law, into the American legal system. Schaefer says um, that this push to do that is visible in the United States during George W. Bush's presidency, uh, that it's extremism, and that he regrets getting his father involved uh, with Rush Juni and his ilk. There is a connection between the first section of this chapter about Alice and the second about Rush Juni. Um, it seems that Schaefer wants us to see them as opposed, wants us to see his acceptance of Alice as opposed to the point of view of these restrictive, sexist, uh, limited biblical literalists. But... Um, because he ends the Alice section um, and, and peppers it throughout with all of these um, declarations that he that he doesn't other people that he uh, his view has been broadened such that he can appreciate views different than his, and then turns around and says these people who disagree with me political politically are basically idiots. Um, I don't think it tracks. Again, I think that um, that he is maybe just as much of an extremist. Um, as he's accusing these extremists of being. He's just on the other side of the spectrum. So um, I I think that I would like his argument better if it seemed uh, he put his money where his mouth was, if it seemed he really did um, respect the people who he seems to disagree with most in this chapter. 
Victoria, that's a really good point. That's um, actually, as you said it, as soon as you quoted vaccination against the rejection of the other, I wrote it down on my notepad with a star next to it because I started thinking, but wait, isn't that exactly what he does throughout so much of the book? And so, yes, I just wanted to throw my hat in there and say, yes, I absolutely agree with the objection that you raised because I, I too think that that's what is happening whether deliberately or not throughout many of the chapters. Yeah, and I'm not sure it is deliberate. I want to, um, b- before we bash Schaefer too hard, I do want to say um, that I that I understand um, to a certain degree his struggle. Uh, we all inherit a, a lot of messed up crap from our parents um, that we have to sort of carry around and figure out. And he has the added misfortune of inheriting a lot of messed up crap from people who are public figures, who other people in the world sort of feel like they own a piece of. And that's got to be even tougher. So I, I do really sympathize with, with his issues, but I, I, I don't think that he's doing what uh, what he says he's doing. Well, and to me, Victoria, too, it almost feels like that he, like you said, he seems to give this idea that he's dealt with his baggage, dealt with his issues, and, you know, has emerged from that process. But to me, it seems very much like that no, that he's been going through that process publicly in his books, that he seems to be still working through issues from his childhood, issues that he had with his parents. And so it's just, but it's just all out there on the page. And I don't, that's so interesting to me that when he started feeling these regrets about the views that he espoused in the past and when he started changing as a person, it's interesting to me that rather than kind of continuing to deal with that privately that he decided to continue moving in the public mode that he's been in since he was a very young person because of his parents to do that while he was dealing with his issues. That was an interesting choice to me. That is, that's such a great point that like perhaps um, he's, he's using his writing and his position as a public figure to work through all of this stuff. Cause that's all he's ever known. Interesting. Uh, Katie, you're up next. Tell us about, Chapter 8. Okay, so um, I chose Chapter 8, which is called, in quotes, Make Sure You Tell Your Readers I Changed My Mind. Um, and the she, uh, or sorry, the I in that is is his mother, Edith. So um, Chapter 8, like lots of the other chapters, um, as we've been talking about, kind of begins with a personal anecdote and then proceeds to a larger statement of opinion or about policy or something like that. So at the beginning of Chapter 8, we get this uh, memory. Um, this one's not from from Frank's childhood. It's later, from 1983. Um, and he talks about uh, leading a group of protesters. Um, oh, actually, sorry, that's a different thing. Um, that's a little description. Um the story that he's telling here, okay, yeah, 1983 in Atlanta, and he describes uh, picketing an abortion clinic with his mother, who has shown up to picket the abortion clinic looking impossibly stylish in uh, Chanel, because of course she did. Um, we get lots of statements from Frank in this book about how his, his mother was just always the most stylish woman in the room, and, uh, and she's apparently there in a cocktail dress and stunning Danish silver jewelry, is the quote. Um, and then... From there, we kind of move through some some more kind of descriptions of Frank's mom, both as a younger woman and as a very, very old lady, um, a 96-year-old lady. He describes um, in, his, in a visit with her that he had before he wrote this book in which he told her that he was going to write the book and that he was going to talk about some things um, 
private things she said in the book. And we get this image throughout the book, but especially in this chapter of Edith Schaefer, he describes her as just a superwoman who made everyone else just seem lazy. You know, he never saw her go to sleep at night and, but she was always up, you know, with the dawn, like harvesting her vegetables. And so it's, it's funny or just interesting to me that so often Frank Schaefer seems to be trying to push away, um, push the idea that his mother was totally different from the, the kind of, stuff in her writings that would later inspire people like Mary Pride or, you know, moms of the Quiverful movement. But at the same time, he, the ways that he describes her sometimes sound a whole lot to me, like the kind of classic Proverbs 31 woman, you know, she has this boundless energy and she does all these different things for her family and she's omnicompetent um, and a lot, well, not omnicompetent, but she's competent in a lot of different areas. So it's just, it's an interesting thing. Um, and so then, you know, he kind of, moves from there into a discussion of a very important concept to me, probably one of the most important concepts in the book for understanding Frank Schaefer, which is the idea of aesthetic empathy. And um, this is described on page 197. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read this quote. It's a pretty short quote. Okay. Um, One factor that is actually more of a constant than anything science or religion provides concerning the life issues is what I call our innate sense of aesthetic empathy. Mom's lifelong lament, he had all his fingers and toes, uh, a reference to uh, a miscarried brother of Frank's, illustrates what I mean. Aesthetic empathy is that combination of feelings and facts whereby most of us recognize ourselves in others who look like us. We are moved to compassion when confronted by others when we can relate to them. And that's the end quote. And he, and he brings up this idea after having talked about um, his mother's Swiss nurses thinking that um, wanting to help her end her life at 96 because clearly she has no quality of life. Whereas Frank and his sisters are thinking that's ridiculous. You know, she still she still discusses all the same things with us. She's still the same person on the inside. And so he feels like these nurses don't have this aesthetic empathy with his mother because they don't know her. And he kind of extends then this idea or or explores this idea of aesthetic empathy um, to abortion. Okay. And that's, that's kind of the shift into a a more of a discussion of policy. And he does, he makes this very abrupt shift from memories of his mother to the big question, what is human life? Which was very jarring to me. I thought, oh, okay, we're going to get really deep now. And um, interestingly also, makes, and I don't even know where to go with this, but also as he begins this discussion of what is human life and aesthetic empathy and abortion, he also throws out the idea that to, for him, the, the idea, Christian idea of the age of accountability, he somehow relates that with the idea of personhood and seems to suggest that um, people who believe that there is an, an age of accountability for children would, would not see those children as fully persons until they reach that age, which was interesting to me because I grew up with that idea and I never had it described that way to me. So that was, I don't know if you guys have anything to say about that um, or not, but that was kind of interesting to me that he made that connection. Um, so he kind of goes into, as the chapter goes on, a discussion of Roe versus Wade but also uh, of other legislation, Doe versus Bolton, which elaborated on Roe versus Wade and removed some of the restrictions on abortion that were in the original law. And he says that Roe is a problem. And often in the book, Schaefer seems to be trying to take this middle position between people who he feels like are extreme right wing, you know, pro-lifers who are just intense on that side. But then he also seems to want to separate himself from 
progressive kind of pro-choice views that are, he says, equally kind of extreme. And so he says, um, rather than kind of championing Roe versus Wade, he says Roe was a problem because it mo- it mobilized all these pro-lifers in a way that previous more slow kind of state-by-state legalizing of abortion never had. And so um, it was a problem because, you know, it was done the wrong way. He doesn't object to the legalizing of abortion, but says it was done in a way that was stupid because it mobilized all these people to then rise up. Um, and he goes on and on about how the two sides um, don't, the two equally extreme sides to him aren't treating the people involved as actual people. And he's, he seems very intent that we need to remember there are gray areas and things aren't black and white like that. And even goes as far as saying that he thinks that Roe and Bolton as legislation won't survive in their current forms um, and, and makes um, a couple of different points. One, that public opinion in some ways seems to be swaying um, away from um, a more pro-choice view, at least in some, some demographics, to a more moderate pro-life view. And um, he believes that this is because enhanced uh, ultrasound technology now allows us to see babies in the womb who um, even at very early stages of gestation. And so he thinks that this is one reason that um, fewer young people are supporting unlimited abortion at any stage of pregnancy. So um, towards the end of this chapter, he gives his own kind of guideline. If he could, if he could set the guideline for abortion, for legal abortion, and I'm going to turn to that page because I want to read that. But, um, and he doesn't connect his own ideas about this with the idea of aesthetic empathy in a very direct way. But to me, the aesthetic empathy idea is all over this in a way that I think is a little bit troubling. So on page 212, he um, says that he, he says the following um, about abortion, quote, I was wrong when I was an anti-abortion activist. I changed my mind. Today, I am pro-choice. Today, I'm decidedly not pro-abortion. I think abortion must be legal because women have a need to determine their individual futures because many women find themselves pregnant without the support of a loving community in horrible circumstances uh, because women have been picked on and kicked around throughout history as a result of religious beliefs related to family values that turn out to be anything. But I believe all this because of my aesthetic empathy for the women in my life, um, end quote. So that's that's kind of um, that's kind of his idea on the. His, his empathy for the mother's side. He says later that um, you can't, it's very difficult to look at an ultrasound of a sixth month kind of fetus, which looks fully human, um, and say, well, but, you know, the mother should still just be able to get rid of this baby if she wants to. And um, he also says later, you know, he's kind of straddling this line. He says, well, I'm pro-choice, but I'm anti-abortion, and says later that he thinks that really it should, the law should probably state that abortion should be legal before 12 weeks, but not after. This is Frank's guideline that he gives. And he doesn't really give a whole lot of reasoning for that, though he does say that he thinks it would be a smart move because most abortions happen before 12 weeks anyway, and that um, opinion polls seem to indicate that most Americans would support that type of a guideline. And that's kind of all the reasoning he gives. To me, it seems fairly clear, though, given his descriptions and his definitions of aesthetic empathy, that maybe where this guideline is coming from for him is that usually um, 
with babies after 12 weeks gestation tend to look more human. He talks about aesthetic empathy being our ability to, you know, to empathize with the people who look like us. Well, you know, I just saw my baby at eight weeks gestation a few weeks ago. That baby had a heartbeat, but that baby doesn't look, you know, totally human, right? The baby looks like a jelly bean kind of right now. Um, whereas, you know, babies much later in pregnancy basically look like smaller versions of newborn babies. And so I can't help but wonder if Frank's ideal, you know, kind of limit for abortion has less to do with policy or opinion polls or anything like that, and more to do with the fact that the longer a baby um, gestates, the more human that baby looks. And that seems to be a huge deal for him, is being able to empathize with both the mother and the baby um, on that kind of level. So that was kind of a huge idea for me in this chapter, and that's that's why I wanted to talk about it. Um, And he says, and just one more quote from the end of the chapter, he says, the tyranny of reproductive reality and the fabulous beauty of children collide with my sense of aesthetic empathy for women and for babies born to be born and unborn. This paradox can't be resolved, but only recognized and mediated as best we can in ways that will always be heart wrenching. The context of any given pregnancy is everything. End quote. All right. Uh, Thanks for covering that. And I think that your coverage of aesthetic empathy um, also ties in really well with with the kind of disconnect that Sarah and I were seeing in the earlier chapters. So thanks for that. Um, Now what we're going to do is go around the table and talk about one more thing, one more concept or passage uh, from the text that we think is important. Sarah, why don't you start us off? Okay, um, and I will start off with the actually the last line of Schaefer's book and then go on to point to a couple of other things in the epilogue. Um, so the last line of Schaefer's book reads, Mom and I are very much alike. We each have spent most of our lives rescuing ourselves from ourselves. Um, And yet earlier in the epilogue, he uh, recounts a bus ride uh, wherein he meets uh, two women, one sitting across the aisle from him and one who ends up sitting down next to him. The woman sitting across the aisle, he refers to as this unfortunate young woman, initial capped, as mom would have called her, um, perhaps if she had been, I'm quoting now, Uh, had been happier looking, speaking in a less petulant tone, and carried on a quieter, more intelligent series of cell phone conversations, or if she'd worn something besides too tight, too short shorts, hugging her bulging, dimpled thighs, she might have been attractive. Um, So there's that, which is uh, juxtaposed against the young woman who sits down next to him, and there is an extensive description of her lacy black lingerie that, uh, specifically her thong underwear that pokes out from behind her pants when she bends over to pick something up. Um, so as I've said before, one of the things that I find most perpetually frustrating about Schaefer's book is his vacillation between idealizing or fetishizing some women and vilifying others. Um, so for every extolled example of his wife, Jeannie's forgiveness or his mother's feminist to use his word approach to sexuality, there is another that objectifies or essentializes women. So ultimately if he is allegedly recovered from the miseducation of his youth, why does he perpetuate this Madonna whore complex? Amen. (laughs) 
I, I don't really uh, have a lot of articulate things to say. Um, I also want to talk about the epilogue because that is the point at which I was really ready to throw this book against the wall. Um, I, I found a lot of it frustrating, but none of it so frustrating as the epilogue. Um, I think that because this book is a memoir, I was able to forgive it a lot of its shortcomings because, you know, he's telling his experiences the way he wants to tell his experiences. So I was able to um, bypass some of the stranger passages. Uh, for instance, there's a chapter in which young Frank uh, builds an ice statue of a woman and then proceeds to have sex with it. Yes, listeners, you heard that right. Has sex with an ice statue. You can look it up. Um, and there's also uh, a section where he has a conversation with his own penis, which talks back to him. A lot of really strange stuff that I was able to overlook because... You know, it's how he views his experiences. Um, his childhood was kind of messed up. Whatever. But then we get to this epilogue, and he sits next to um, this Chinese young woman, who he calls Chinese like 30 million times. Um, th there's a, a lot of strange racist kind of fetishization, um, which, which apparently his mother had to. Um, Edith spent some time in China and was really into... Um, various kinds of Asian art and culture and whatnot. So, so maybe he's just absorbing that from her. I don't know. So he talks to this Chinese woman who is engaged to a black man, and her family is against them being married. And um, he asks the Chinese woman if her fiancé is kind, and she says yes. And he says, well, then you should marry him and not worry about what anyone else thinks. Um, which is very sweet, but let's be real, horrible advice. Horrible, terrible advice. Especially since Frank Schaefer has spent this entire book telling us that there are marked differences between the personae that people exhibit outwardly to other people and who they really are. Particularly, he spends a lot of the book talking about how his father, who was, you know, a preacher and a Christian figurehead for however many decades, um often beat his mother at night. Like, you're giving us this, these stories for ten chapters, and then in the epilogue, all that matters is this guy, who you don't even know, by the way, is kind? Like, really? I, that really, really frustrated me. Well, I, yes, I know the passage you're talking about, Victoria. And he even goes on to say, I give unsolicited advice. I get a kick out of it. Maybe people think I'm crazy. But I'm at, I think he called it the F.U. stage of his life. Yeah, he did. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, the FU stage of life. So he's just going to do it anyway, uh, which I found irritating. And to um, to back up his fascination with Asian art and Chinese culture and, and things like that, he even refers to his wife's eyes in his description of her in Chapter 2 as almost Asian hazel eyes, slightly tilted at the corners. So... Uh, another example to back up Victoria's uh, frustration with his, his commentary and whether or not that's coming from his childhood, from his mother or, or whatever. Um, yes. Though apparently his kind of fascination with, with, you know, the beauty of Asian things in general does not completely extend, you know, all the way because I, I got really mad in that same passage, when he describes the the Asian woman sitting next to him as a as having a studious, intelligent face that was a bit scrunched looking, everything compressed, 
flatter and wider than optimal. And I was like, you are kidding right yes. now, Frank Schubert. Yes, absolutely. And I think, oh, sorry. So, it, so it's cool that she has an Asian face, except when her Asian face looks too Asian and wide set, and then it's not cool. <laughs> or, apparently, or something. Apparently not. But man, check out that. You know what? I'm surprised his penis didn't start talking to him when he saw the lazy black underwear. Which, which just to be totally undergraduate for a moment, I, the, what I ha- when he talked about her underwear, I thought, what a creeper. I mean, that's, that's the 18-year-old me coming out in that word, but I, that's totally how I felt. Yes, it was. It, it, yes. Yeah, seriously, I kept waiting for his penis to start talking to him like it did the last time an attractive woman sat next to him in close proximity in a small space. So. And I, um, I think that these two women in the epilogue, the epilogue was, was a, a huge deal for me, too, because I, I couldn't stop thinking, um, again, back to the whole ex- aesthetic empathy idea, right? Because he seems to feel some empathy with the Asian woman sitting next to him who, you know, he feels like is wearing nice underwear and who seems to present um, an image that he can empathize with. Whereas the unfortunate young woman across the aisle who, you know, Sarah read this great quote to describe her, um, who he also says has linked sandy blonde hair and that she's pudgy and heavy set he keeps talking about how she's fat which you know just got all over me but as i'm reading this i'm thinking okay frank schaefer i'm look, thinking back to what he said in the previous chapter the chapter that i talked about and i'm thinking so would you be you know you, you talk about this aesthetic empathy with women um because of all the beautiful wonderful women in your life and that this is why you can empathize with mothers who might want abortions okay but say you're confronted with the unfortunate young woman are you going to champion her right to choose or are you going to feel less aesthetic empathy with her because she kind of puts you off because she's icky i you know i thought that was kind of troubling and i didn't you know the the epilogue cast just all kinds of even worse lights on aesthetic empathy for me as uh, you know that things that hadn't even uh or in ways that it didn't earlier i guess i should say that uh thanks katie for those comments now it's time to transition into the final segment of the podcast passing on where we recommend Uh, Things we think are cool that we think our listeners should check out. Katie, why don't you lead us off? Okay, thanks. So um, the thing that I'm going to recommend this week is actually very, very um, centered on what we talked about this week um, for people who might be a little bit more interested. But when I was doing my research on Libri, I found a very, very interesting article on Christianity Today on the website from uh, 2008, and the title of the, the article is Not Your Father's Labrie, The Swiss Retreat Now Tends Less to Philosophical Skeptics Than to Disaffected Evangelicals. And it's a, it's a very long article, but intensely interesting, because this is the article that really um, kind of described for me the, the morphing over time from the original kind of first-generation run, Schaefer run, Labrie in Switzerland, um, and the kind of demographics that they were working with, to now what kinds of students are coming um, and, and the things that they're talking about. And they, um, the author Molly Worthen begins the story with a description of a young woman who, you know, had attended recently at that time, had gone to Labrie in Switzerland, who was, you know, is the daughter of a Presbyterian church in America minister and has spent her life as kind of a poster child for the church. That's a quote from the student. And, um, a student who, you know, kind of burst her Christian bubble, if you will, at the end of college and was wondering what to do next and 
didn't really have the same kind of friends and wasn't sure she wanted to claim the beliefs that she grew up with and things of that nature. So um, that's kind of how it begins. And then the writer kind of follows through um, different stages and talks uh, to different people who had been to Libri at different stages. So for anybody who's interested in this and how it's changed over time, um, it, it's a very interesting read and um, something that would be worth checking out. So thanks. Thanks, Katie. Sarah? Okay. Uh, my recommendation today uh, is um, another take on memoir, if you will. Um, I know we've talked a little bit before in today's podcast about how we all grow up with stuff and the stuff we grow up with affects who we become. So if you're interested in that sort of reading, uh, my recommendation today is called Resurrecting Grace, Remembering Catholic Childhoods. It's edited by Marilyn Sewell, S-E-W-E-L-L. This collection of memoirs features writers such as Sandra Cisneros, uh, Frank McCourt, Thomas Merton, and Tobias Wolfe. Uh, so while this collection on the whole lacks some of the political fervor of Schaefer's Sex, Mom, and God, I hope that it provides another way for us to view our own religious upbringings and the way they can inflect our uh, adult perspectives on ourselves and the world around us. Thanks, Sarah. That sounds like a really interesting read. Uh, so my recommendation was going to be something frivolous um, and, and just silly to counteract how, uh, <laughs> how angry uh, Sex Mom and God made me. But right before I was going to, um, to record, uh, a friend of mine linked a blog post from CBE, uh, Christians for Biblical Equality, and um, th their name should tell you uh, a lot about their standpoint. Um, and the blog post is titled, Why We Stand with John Piper on Women's Education. Um, and it's about um, the recent uh, kidnapping of 276 students from the Shibak Government Girls Secondary School in Nigeria. Um, John Piper, who I'm sure most of our listeners know, is a pastor, a former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, um, renowned um, conservative complementarian. Um, Piper says there are four reasons, quote, why we educate our girls. Um, one, God created Adam, both men and women, in God's own image. Two, God is revealed in nature. And three, God's inspired word and is glorified when women and men learn about and commune with God through these forms of revelation. And four, all the roles into which God leads women call for the habits of mind which education is meant to cultivate. And the CBE goes on and says, uh, while we at the CBE um, probably really disagree with all the roles into which God leads women, um, while they probably view those roles different than John Piper does, it's very important for them to stand together as Christians who disagree about that point um, on the point that women do need to be educated and valued um, because they're creations of God. So I really felt like this article, um, in reaching out, in the fact that the CBE, a more liberal organization, is reaching out in agreement with John Piper, a more conservative pastor, to value women. Um, I thought that this 
gave an interesting counterpoint, a kind of alternative to the disconnect and the maybe possible hypocrisy that we were seeing in Schaefer. So that's my recommendation. Ladies, do you have anything else to add before we wrap this up? No. Yeah, me neither. Uh, Excellent. Okay, so this has been episode 8.2 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'd like to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you want to just say hi, please do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and all of our episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. This is the final episode for our first season, hooray, end of the first season, and we'll be back this summer once a month. Uh, with our June episode covering the feminist blogosphere, so look forward to that. For Katie Grubbs and Sarah Morrow-Cernelia, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Until next month, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>